0: Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, my guest is Georgia Mason University economist Garrett Jones, the author of Hive Mind, How Your Nation's IQ Matters So Much More Than Your Own. Now, as past listeners of the show know, I'm extremely interested in what what will happen when we use genetic engineering to increase human intelligence. Garrett is an expert on the importance of IQ to a nation's economy. Welcome, Garrett. Thanks very much for having me, James. So, Garrett, what does IQ measure in an individual, and and how, how robust is the findings?
1: Well, it turns out that uh, skills predict skills when it comes to mental tests. So, um, people who tend to be good in one mental area tend to be good at another. Um, so, this is one of the reason uh, one of the reasons that psychologists can give someone a fairly short IQ test and be pretty sure. That, that gives us an index of how a person will do on a wide variety of other tasks. So um I'd say one way to sum it up is that on pretty good IQ tests, um your score on on some subtests, some portions of the exam, will actually explain about half of how well you do on other portions of the exam, maybe even more. So um even so this is one thing that's very helpful to economists because we're lazier than psychologists. So when we want to, you know, give uh, an IQ test in an experiment, we don't want to take a full three hours to give someone a test. So we found that we can just give our experimental subjects a uh, 45-minute test like the Ravens, which is a short multiple-choice pattern-finding test. And that actually has pretty good predictive potential for somebody's full IQ. Um, I'm glad to go into further detail on other um, things that IQ tests predict, but in terms of just raw mental skills, it turns out that People who do better on visual spatial parts of a test are fairly likely to have a pretty good vocabulary and vice versa.
0: So like the Dungeons and Dragons model where you have like a total amount of skill set and you allocate it among different abilities, that's like completely wrong for human intelligence. The way human intelligence is the better you are at one thing, you tend to be better at something else for intellectual tasks.
1: This means that our parents and grandparents were wrong when they told us that everything balances out in the end. So this is the life is um, very, very unfair result. Yes, in the sense that uh, if, I, if I know how good you are in one area, you're probably above average in other areas. If I know you're below average in one area, you're probably below average in other areas. Now, so a, again, skills predict skills and weaknesses predict weaknesses. Now, as I'm sure you know,
0: there's been a massive replication crisis in psychology where a lot of their results aren't holding up how confident can we be that iq is really a good measure and isn't just a result of bad data collection
1: well this is something where there just have just been so many tests run over basically a century now that um this is incredibly an incredibly robust result um i think linda Gottfriedson was right when she said that this is you know one of the most robust results in all of the social sciences um i believe that's getting her quote about right and um one reason to believe this result is because there's such a market demand for the opposite result. I mean, uh, prof- uh, professional psycho- you know, academic psychologists um, are about as left-leaning as other academics. And so I think there's no strong demand-side reason to believe that intelligence tests are a reliable metric of uh, human performance. So I think if, um, if someone could build a career showing that um, skills in one area predict weaknesses in another – they would instantly become a famous psychologist. And do we... um, I've actually thought, mm-hmm. go ahead.
0: Uh, do we have solid physical evidence of IQ? Are there things you can get from brain structure that show, yeah, something physical is correlated with IQ?
1: Yes. Um, again, this is something that used to be treated as almost superstition, but now it's routinely tested in um, MRI exams. So the correlation between brain size and IQ is probably about 0.3, um, which is a moderate correlation but it shows up under very many different metrics. Um, And uh, there's so many studies of this that there are meta-analyses and textbook reviews of the meta-analyses. So this is a reasonably robust result. So So just people with um, bigger
0: brains on average are smarter?
1: Yeah, so about a a third of a standard deviation rise in IQ predicts about .3 standard deviation rise in your brain size, yeah.
0: Okay, and does, I mean, so IQ strongly correlates with your ability to do well in different tests. But what about with life outcomes for the individual? Is IQ well, um, strongly correlated with, with good life outcomes?
1: Well, in my book, I actually focus on um, worker outcomes. That's one that I've been reading up on a lot over the last couple of years. And there, um, there's it turns out that there's a huge human resources literature that looks to see what predicts whether workers turn out any good. And it turns out that the best single predictor uh, – or there's no better predictor of uh, job performance than an IQ test. So this is part of the reason – it must be part of the reason the U.S. military actually uses IQ tests to weed people out. Um, if, uh, if IQ tests just predicted how well he did on some boring multiple-choice test, the, it would be foolish for the U.S. military to turn down job applicants. But they do it every day.
0: And, just and based is, on your IQ
1: score. This is true for all
0: levels of the military, not just for people planning logistics or generals. But if you're, you know, you're a private throwing grenades at an enemy, having a high IQ makes you more deadly.
1: It seems like it. It seems as though basically, um, learning ability, the ability to um, pull down some tasks, to learn them fairly quickly and and perform them fairly readily, is uh, is predicted by an IQ test. So. Okay. Um, there's a, there was a famous study known as the army alpha study that looked at, that looked at this in quite a, quite a number of ways.
0: Now, is this true over the full range of IQ tests? Is it the case that once you're sufficiently smart, it doesn't really matter if you are even smarter?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Often there's a sort of uh, meme floating around that at some point, all that matters is your effort. But, um, there's a, there was an old study of, uh of uh, kids who took the SAT when they were quite young and uh, this study broke people down within the top 1% of all of these child test takers people who were in basically the top quarter of 1% versus the second quarter and the third quarter and those differences which are were among the elite of a young elite um, turned out to predict uh, their likelihood of um, having a PhD decades later of having a patent of having published a book or an article Uh, things that we, most of us would consider pretty strong intellectual endeavors. So, so, um, yeah, even at the very high end, it looks like there's, there's no, there's no end to which IQ is, there's no point in which IQ is either bad or neutral as far as we can tell.
0: To what extent is IQ destiny? I mean, if you know an eight year old's IQ, is that, I mean, how, how much do you know how how successful that eight year old as an
1: adult is going to turn out to be? Well, this is one of the parts of my book that a lot of people find controversial because, um, I sort of thought that I'd get a lot of pushback on my book from saying IQ is too big a deal. But in fact, the biggest pushback I've got is when I point out that when it comes to predicting wages, IQ isn't that big a deal at all. So I said before that, like, the, um, like the relate, the correlation between IQ and, and usually measured job performance is about 0.5, which is decent. The correlation between your IQ and your wages is maybe 0.3 or 0.2. So, and when it comes to the actual magnitudes, um, one IQ point, which is a fifteenth of a standard deviation, one IQ point predicts maybe one percent higher wages. The biggest optimists would pick two, would say it predicts two percent higher wages, but the pessimists would say something like it predicts a half a percent higher wages. So, uh, substantially higher IQ doesn't seem to predict a massively higher wage. So wait, just um, just to summarize what you're saying.
0: So having a much higher IQ will make you a much more productive worker, but it won't translate into you being paid a lot more? Is that what you're basically saying?
1: I th- yes. Now, I think part of the reason for that um, may be because um, there are other traits that decide whether you're good for a particular task. So idiosyncratic – maybe some combination of idiosyncratic tastes and idiosyncratic skills that determine whether, say, you make it as a physicist or whether you make it as a plumber or an electrician, something like that. Um, so within your job, um, higher IQ is a moderately strong predictor um, of, uh, of job performance, but it's a weaker predictor of your wages overall. Okay. So
0: you're, the argument there could be people with really high IQs don't go into high paying jobs. They're more likely to be, you might become a theoretical physicist. Well, if you're not smart enough to be a theoretical physicist, you work for a hedge fund and you, you make you know, hundreds of millions.
1: Or it it could be a version of that, but I, I tend to think that there's something just much more idiosyncratic about the job market and about the linkage between a person's skills and what job they, what career path they wind up in. So um, you know, one of the mysteries of labor economics is that nothing predicts your wages that well. And I think part of that is because the mixture of idiosyncratic tastes and more so skills, I think, just being the right person for this or that kind of career. Uh, is what has has an effect on your overall wage pattern, or it could, it could be there's a lot of randomness involved in our lives. It could be that. Now that said, I mean, the link between um, the link between IQ and wages is like I said. Let's stick with that median the median estimate I stick with, which is one IQ point one percent. You know, if the market could find a way. To um, If the market found out that high IQ people were actually vastly, vastly more, more productive than average people, mm-hmm. firms would be foolish to um, underpay these, uh, these highly skilled workers. There'd be a huge bidding war for these folks with these 115, 130, 140 IQs. Right. But instead, on average, we don't see this bidding war for the ultra high IQ. They're do, they do great in their tasks. That doesn't mean it gets a huge market reward.
0: Okay, so you're saying is right for an economist. If you say one group of workers is worth a lot more but not paid a lot more, we would we would say, wait, that's a market inefficiency. So there's either a cause yes. of the market inefficiency or we're mistaken about something. And what, yes. so what are you are you saying it's not a market inefficiency?
1: I don't think it's a market inefficiency at all. I think the market is correctly valuing at that at the private level at the individual level. Your IQ doesn't make you that much more. Your high IQ doesn't make you that much more productive to an individual firm.
0: OK. Uh, why not, though? Is that a weakness of IQ or the sort of IQ critics? Does this give IQ critics a lot of
1: justification? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, because um, – I mean, it's the best thing you've got going in a – among a pretty broad set of uh, tools that people have to look at. So um, – I mean, I don't actually pay that much attention to what IQ critics are saying. I don't think they're betting their farm on the claim that the link between IQ and private wages is moderate.
0: Okay. Well, let's turn to the the subtitle of your book, which is again, how your nation's IQ matters so much more than your own. So you're saying that, you know, if if a kid, one kid is a few IQ points smarter than another kid, it's not that big a deal in their life outcomes. But if one mm-hmm. nation has a few uh, – their average IQ is a little bit higher than another's, that is a big deal. Is that, is that your thesis? Is that your main thesis of your book?
1: That's, that's exactly my story. It's that it's more important to be around smart people than, to be, than for you to be smart yourself. So what, what's driving that result? Well, I, that's, that's what I refer to as the five channels of the hive mind. So the book catalogs quite a variety of reasons for why I think IQ has positive spillovers, positive side effects – Um, But um, I I can sum it up by saying that, on average, smarter people are more patient, so they save up more capital. Um, Smarter people are more cooperative, which matters a lot for government quality and sometimes for firm quality. Smarter people become better informed voters. Um, They're better at dealing with very delicate tasks, very complicated tasks that where um, one mistake can destroy the whole um, economic process. And smarter people are peers. They they become our peers – and we tend to become a little bit like the people around us so that if you're around people who are smarter, more patient, um, better informed voters, that'll make you a little bit smarter, a little more patient, a little bit better informed.
0: Okay. Well, let's go through some of those. So people, people who are smarter are more patient. So that means they value the future more?
1: Yes. Um, there's actually a nice um, yeah, uh, study, a meta-analysis actually of all of these studies showing the link between IQ and patience. And uh, a Yale professor um, actually wrote a meta-analysis that, that showed that this is a strikingly robust result. People who are smarter tend to be better at delaying gratification and choosing the future over the present. And
0: I mean why do you think this is? This I mean, normally economists look at your time preference is just like whether you like broccoli or not. It's it's not it's not right or wrong to be wrong with future or present oriented. It's just your preferences. But you there's this yes. correlation between IQ and time preference.
1: Yes, I'm um, I don't Um, claim to have a complete answer to this, but Shemosh and Gray, the people who co-authored this meta-analysis, they put forward this, this story, which is they say that um, one of the traits that IQ really predicts is working memory, how many facts you can keep in mind at once. And what Shemosh and Gray point out is that um, being patient, making a decision between now and the future means keeping four different facts in mind. Uh, basically, whether you consume something now or whether you consume it later, what are those two experiences like? And what if you don't consume it now and what if you don't consume it later? So you actually have to keep four states in mind when you're trying to evaluate the very simple choice. Do I eat this apple today or do I eat this apple in the future? It's also a form of counterfactual analysis, thinking about a counterfactual, something that's not going to happen. How do I compare something that happens to something that doesn't happen? That's a fairly abstract thought in its own way. And if you just imagine people making many of those decisions over the course of their life, that could be somewhat mentally taxing.
0: And why would people, people being more future-oriented, why would that cause an economy as a whole to grow faster?
1: Um, because if people are more patient, then they're saving more. And if they're saving more, that means there's more money to be lent out, in particular, um, to entrepreneurs, to businesses that can uh, take, on, take on tasks and help build up the nation's capital stock.
0: Um, I, okay, I could certainly see why that would be true if like, every, company, every country had a closed capital market. But given we have global capital markets, why is that such a big deal? If there's an impatient country where their people don't save, won't just capitalists from other countries invest in their country?
1: Well, this is one of the, one of the great puzzles of international economics. It's known as the Feldstein-Horioca puzzle. And it, uh, your theory is completely right. It seems like if capital could really move across countries easily – then um whether people in your country are more patient um wouldn't really matter very much um because you can just get money from other patient countries um but on average it seems like countries with high sa- personal savings rates tend to have high rates of private investment um my favorite theoretical explanation i don't know if it's true but i like it cuz it's as a story is that you always every investor wants some local skin in the game so um every investment project uh, investment projects are much more successful if you have local knowledge and local entrepreneurs putting in some money, and so high rates of savings in your country means that there will be more people in your country who can bring some skin to the game of a of a long term investment project.
0: Okay, so it's outside investors don't trust local investors. They they wouldn't trust to put money into an economy unless people in the local economy were putting their own money in
1: as well. Yes, I'd say that's a big part of it. And uh, but on a on another level, I would say that. A lot of capital is not um, physical capital that you invest in a bank. A lot of it is actually organizational capital. And so, therefore, it's basically the processes, the culture of an organization. And so, in order to get good companies up and running in a country, you need entrepreneurs and top-level managers who have a long time horizon, who have a patient time horizon. And that's more likely when you have people around who are higher IQ.
0: What is the argument that... This is mostly cultural, that people are taught to be patient or not. And if you don't have a lot of resources, there's no real point in being patient because even if you accumulate them, other people will just come and take them. And so it's not really IQ. It's that IQ is correlated with wealth and patience is correlated
1: with wealth. Is that possible? Um, I do think that there are certain that there are a lot of cultural forces affecting patients other than IQ. Um, but the nice thing about a lot of these IQ studies is that they're um, – they have a lot of multivariate controls. They're looking at – you know, for instance, there was a nice paper in the American Economic Review, which a lot of people consider the top journal in economics. And uh, What these scholars did is they ran the study in Germany, and they're, sort of, they're basically looking at all Germans, and all of the – they have additional data on them beyond just their IQ and how they behaved on this patient's test. They also have data on their income and how they – what their education level is and a bunch of other facts. So – um, so when you're looking at people who look fairly similar, raised within the same culture, but who differ on IQ, um, in that setting, higher IQ people tend to be more patient. So, um, you know, there's, there's some great articles lately in economics about whether the verbs that your country uses to refer to, um, the present and the future and the past tenses. Has a predictive effect for your nation's um, savings rates. Huh. So there's a lot of interesting work on culture and patience, mm-hmm. um, but uh, that doesn't that doesn't mean that IQ doesn't matter. It just means uh, my story is not the whole story.
0: Now, you also mentioned that people of higher IQ are better at cooperating, and I think in your book you talk about the prisoner's dilemma, and in the prisoner's dilemma, higher IQ people are more likely to achieve the win-win outcome when they play repeated a multiple number of times,
1: is that is that yes. you're saying? So yes, Why not? uh-huh. Oh, go on. Sorry. Well, yes, this is this is something that had been um, around very slightly in the psychology literature, but in recent years, um, it, economists have started doing research in this area as well. Um, I think I can. I think it's safe for me to say that I was the first economist to actually look at this question, um, and at least to publish anything about it. And since then, it's – there's a small number of papers that have looked at this and it seems to be fairly robust that smarter groups are more cooperative in experimental game settings. And, and then
0: you can generalize the and answer. say, well, maybe this means since there's a lot of prisoner's dilemma situations in an economy, smarter people are able to, to overcome them and to get the good it. Yeah, outcome. to
1: engage in you – know, the, the first, uh, the first uh, person I cite in my book is actually Stephen Covey, who wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of his habits was think win-win. And I tend to think that smarter people are just more likely to think win-win, to basically look for a way to turn a bad situ- a bad negotiation situation into a good situation where both sides can come away at least a little bit better off. Now,
0: is that because um, smarter people are not as likely to take advantage of someone else? Or is it because they figure out a way where – you know, it's not in anyone's interest for anyone to take advantage of someone else.
1: Well, the strongest results seem to be in repeated games or games where there's at least some element of time, some kind of sequential action. Um, I think it's safe to say the evidence is a little more mixed when you're just looking at one round game. So I don't think that there's not much evidence that smarter people are just nicer overall. Um, But uh, there is more evidence that in a, compl- in a repeated game setting, smarter people seem to be a little bit more focused on building a reputation as, a win- as someone who will um, return tit for tat, someone who cooperate with a cooperator okay. rather than someone who will stick a knife in the back at the first opportunity.
0: Okay. And you, I certainly can imagine how that would be very important for an economy to have businesses that can trust each other and think that other businesses will care more about their long run reputation than a short term getting and- a short term profit.
1: And, and let me let me pick an example from one of my own um, studies I co-authored with uh, Omar al and Yap Wheel. Um, I think this gives a sense of just how, how messed up human beings are as a species. <laughs> so in this, in this game, um, the average rate of cooperation between our random pair of players in this 10-round, repeated prisoner's dilemma game, people manage to get to work out cooperation, I think, 22 percent of the time. When we looked at the high IQ pairs, people whose IQs were a standard deviation above the mean, they only got it up to 33 percent of the time. But that was still really statistically significant and a huge, as we say in economics, a huge semi-elasticity. Yeah. So – but basically the, the smart pairs are getting it right a third of the time, right, which is – you're talking basically – it's a bit like the world of baseball, right, where a batting average of 300 can make you look pretty good. Mm-hmm.
0: So does this mean if I'm negotiating with someone and I want to know if I can trust them or not, the smarter they are, the more likely I should say, yeah, I should trust them?
1: I think so, as long as part of what you're doing is um, acting a bit like a tit-for-tat player. Make it clear that um, you're not a sucker who's just going to be um, trustworthy no matter what, um, trusting no matter what, Mm -hmm. but instead make sure you're you're someone who is – You know, you try building trust on a little on a few small little things first and see Mm -hmm. if that sticks. And if that sticks, then I think what's happening is both sides, if they're smart, are more likely to see the lesson. Oh, we trusted each other on these little things. Let's build up to trusting on bigger and bigger things. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Another point you mentioned is that um, it's important for a nation to have a high IQ because of how voters act. So you're mm-hmm. saying voters make more intelligent decisions when picking their leaders if the voters tend to be smarter?
1: Yeah, I, I um, this is uh, partly inspired by my excellent colleague uh, Brian Kaplan's work. He wrote a great book called Myth of the Rational Voter. Yeah, I, I read that later. book. It
0: was quite interesting.
1: Yes, and his, uh, uh, his subsequent work, um, he, he co-authored a paper uh, where they actually used um, a more or less an IQ test, um, a, a vocabulary test as a proxy for IQ. And it turns out that on average, if you want to know are people in us? Are people likely to agree with economists on this or that economic issue? Um, a reasonably good predictor is whether um, that person has a high IQ. Um, and you can understand part of why this might be true, and that'd be because you know a lot of economic ideas are just very hard and abstract, and they require thinking about second and third and fourth order consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of complicated. It's not just economics is this way. It's you know, chemistry is this way, it's just that less of our voting policy turns on chemistry issues than on economics issues.
0: Right, and people don't um, think they understand chemistry. Well, they do think they understand economics.
1: Yes, yeah, so everyone lives in the economy, so we all think we understand economics. But uh, I imagine
0: a left-wing sociologist who looked at the same data that Brian Kaplan looked at would conclude higher IQ voters make worse
1: decisions. Is that probably right? Yeah, that, that's, that's true. And um, so that's why um, I, I basically build on Uh, Kaplan's idea by saying hey let's look across a broad variety of areas and see if this is true Um, the example I start with is the same one he starts with which is um, toxicology so in the field of toxicology smarter people are more likely to agree with toxicologists that um, uh, the danger is in the dose rather than that any amount of poison is bad Mm -hmm. right so it's a subtle idea and it seems obvious once you hear about it like of course a, a little bit of mercury probably doesn't matter at all if it's a you know, uh, if it's a tiny enough amount and a big dose is bad, the danger is in the dose. Um, and there's some limited results in political science as well that support this. So basically, um, people who, um, that, that there's a, you can distinguish between more and less informed voters. Uh, but part of something that a sociologist might like is something that um, has gotten some attention on um, in the media outside my book, uh, which is that. Uh, higher IQ people are more likely to be uh, socially tolerant and on a wide variety of issues. So if you plug it all together, it looks like higher IQ people are more likely to be economically uh, free market leaning, not by much. I don't want to claim that it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little more likely to be market leaning and they're a little bit more likely to be socially tolerant in their personal lives. So they're a bit of what, um, what one might today call libertarian.
0: Well, why do you think they're likely to be more socially tolerant?
1: Um, I think it, I, I suspect it's, well, part of it might be, let me give a first something that I can point to from, psycholo- from psychological theory uh, and, and research, which is that the one personality trait that is correlated with intelligence is openness to new experiences. So smarter people are more open. Um, in, in terms of variables economists care about, smarter people actually tend to be more risk tolerant. Um, they have a lower degree of risk aversion. So they're more willing to sort of take a chance on things that seem a little risky. And um, social innovation, um, cultural innovation is genuinely a little risky. And uh, it looks like smarter people are more likely to um, take, a, take a chance on that. So this is something that um, the psych- a psych- a social psychologist at LSE, whose name escapes me at the moment, has worked on quite to some degree.
0: Okay. I guess that's a reasonable strategy. I mean, the less intelligent that you are, the less willing you should be able to try novel things because you can't predict what's going to happen. And, of course, most changes to your life are probably going to be for the worse. since there's Yes, I think
1: that's something I've thought for quite some time. That this is um, both uh, – it could be perhaps evolutionarily optimal and just individually optimal um, for smarter people to take more risks and for less intelligent people to hunker down – and be conservative. Um, If you don't understand the world, don't start pressing the buttons on the dashboard.
0: I wonder if there was some social change that was just clearly idiotic, but it was like the popular thing to do. I wonder if smarter people would oppose it. I mean, if, I don't know, people were infecting themselves with some virus because it was, I don't know, good for some religion. Would smart people say like, no, you really don't wanna be tolerant of people doing this? Or would they say, well, yeah, you should be open because people want to, it's their bodies.
1: This is something that I would love to see tested and you know I would love to see for instance to give a real world horror story in the early 20th century were smarter people more likely to be communist. So if you looked within say the the UC Berkeley or the Harvard faculty or some other elite group where the were the smarter professors more likely to say no this communism stuff is bad news and the um, duller professors were more likely to say oh yeah let's give it a shot.
0: Do you know what the results are? I mean certainly there were a lot of No, I'm communists. just curious.
1: This just seems this seems like it's a it'd be a great project for a grad student to work on. I'm happy to throw out projects for other people to look at. Just to look at the the, the eminence of the publisher uh, the eminence of academics who supported communism versus <laughs> those who um, stayed neutral or rejected it, you know. Yeah, it'd be people who if, were say eh,
0: big pardon? Yeah, it'd be great if you get their GRE scores as well. Yeah, currently like done, but
1: yeah. yeah,
0: yes. Um so I mean, in the libertarian like community there's a big split over immigration and a yeah. lot of it comes down to like voters you know that generally generally libertarians aren't much into nationalism so it's like well you know should america take in a lot of immigrants and the the main argument against it is well they'll vote they'll eventually or their children will vote and they'll make bad voting decisions i mean mm-hmm. is what you're saying an argument against letting in people with low iqs because they'll corrupt or not corrupt i should say but they'll give us a worse democratic outcome
1: well um re- really what you want to think about is what will their children's and grandchildren's iqs be like so um it's horrible for me to pick exceptions to make a, a big a big story like this but let me let me do a horrible thing okay so we all know from looking at the data from the IQ data, which is that um, – and from international test score data, even if you don't use IQ tests, that India has a fairly low average IQ, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the usual estimate is somewhere in the low 80s, and that's the average, right? You've got a lot of people who are very high, higher than that, and some that are lower. India, of course, has a lot of malnutrition. Yes, yes. Now, the thing is we all know that Indian-Americans, people who come here, are quite different from that average mm-hmm. of 82, Right in the U.S., like they're an exceptionally high-performing group.
0: Yeah, and then the data is really striking. I mean, they do much better on average than white
1: Americans do. Much better than white Americans, yes. So it's um, uh, so there's a, this is a case where there's something going on that is not some weird exception. We're talking about a country with a sixth of the people on the planet. Yeah, and where the people who come here, where our, the the method, of, whatever method of selection is going on, the folks coming here are much better. It is to somebody that – is this cultural? Is this like really strong selection? Is it – well, if you have 1.2 billion people, there's always somebody smart. Is is something about America a better – I don't know. Like <laughs> I literally don't know. I'm not being PC. This is just the way it is, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there are and- these and-
0: – Fantastic anomalies. And and the children of like Indian doctors and professors who come here, they're also, I think, much smarter than you know white Americans on average. So you can't just say it's like there'll be reversion to the mean because we would see we sec- that in the, the second generation. We we, we
1: don't. Sec- if there were mean reversion to eighty-two, you would see it happening very quickly, right? Yeah, it, it would it be would... extraordinarily yeah.
0: obvious, and you certainly yeah. would not be seeing as many Indians who are valedictorian of their high school class as we currently do. So the simple, well, we select for really high IQ people, but reversion to the mean—we've pretty much falsified that 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 possibility.
1: Yes. So um, you know, I tend to think that um, high IQ immigration does buy a lot, does buy a nation a lot of safety. Um, I think that uh, decades from now, a lot of us will look back and say that the Canadian approach, the Australian approach, the New Zealand approach, the Singapore approach, the Hong Kong approach. Um, well, what uh, do they
0: do? I, do they explicitly just take in high IQ immigrants?
1: No, they tend, to, they tend to focus on other metrics of human capital on average. But of course, all metrics of human capital tend to be correlated with each other because of you know what psychologists call the G factor. Mm-hmm. Skills predict skills. So selecting on – just deciding you're going to bring in people who are really good plumbers, who, ha- who are really good electricians, who are really good um, electrical engineers means you're likely to get a high IQ or high G or whatever you'd like to call it, population. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're basically um, down the road. I think they're, uh, they're likely to, on average, wind up with a higher human capital population than countries that just say, well, let's just, let's just take whoever, whoever comes in. Um, so a human, whether you uh, whether you call it human, uh, whether you call it IQ screening or SAT scores or human capital or skill focused immigration, these things all tend to be correlated with each other anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, people in the media don't like to think about that, but you know, the positive correlations are this positive correlation across human capital metrics mm-hmm. is a real thing. Okay. So the um, so the political externalities of low-skilled immigration are important to worry about, and they're important, especially important to worry about if they're intergenerationally intergenerationally persistent.
0: Okay. So that is, it's not necessarily a dispositive reason, but it is a reason to reject low-skilled immigrants into your country. Again, there might be humanitarian reasons why you'd still want to.
1: Certainly. And and it, and it might turn out that, uh, that in certain cases, there'll be uh, interesting forms of mean reversion um, or interesting... I mean, like the Indian example is so important that yeah. that we just can't just we can't go on without mentioning it. Right. It's a. Yeah, like, a, it, it's,
0: it's very vulnerable. weird. and
1: Yeah, it's it's a reminder of just how little we know about intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's partly the way I, the reason I framed the book as I did, which is I say in the introduction, this isn't a book about where IQ comes from. It's a book about where your nation's IQ takes you. Mm-hmm. Um, the debates about the former issue, about what shapes IQ across the generations is not just a politically contested topic, but a scientifically contested topic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to get answers on that. So I wanted to focus my book where I think we can get answers, which is that it looks like there are IQ externalities, which makes it more important to focus on for other people to find out where IQ comes from.
0: Right. And and the key for non-economists listening is when there's an externality, you don't capture the benefit or pay the cost of it. So yes. th- that means my having a higher or lower IQ affects people that I'm not in a business relationship with. It can make them richer or
1: poorer. Yes. Okay. So if there were no externalities to IQ, if there were no spill no side effects, then it would be no really nobody's business whether um, you know someone ha- whether someone brings in high IQ or low IQ workers, high skilled or low skilled workers, and it really wouldn't matter um, to anybody else other than other than the employer. Um, but if if those, if the, if higher low skilled immigrants are voting for different things, are um, shaping the culture in a more or less cooperative way, this is something that will affect everyone eventually.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, yeah. you have a, you mentioned a lot of theory called your O ring theory. Yes. Uh, what, yes. Is, what is that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so here I'm basically, um, work, working off of Michael Creamer of Harvard's fascinating model, the O ring theory of economic development. And what he says is he thinks that a lot of, A lot of the modern economy is like the Space Shuttle, where um, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded uh, just after, shortly after takeoff, because one rubber O-ring malfunctioned. And because of the malfunctioning of one basically rubber grommet that was there to to keep a valve uh, stopped up, um, because that failed, um, hot engine fuel leaked out and the Space Shuttle exploded. So he says a lot of things in the modern economy are like that, of course, in a less horrifying way. (laughs) Um, Like computer chips, small errors in computer chip manufacture. Um, A small error in how uh, a dress is made. Um, These things make the product almost worthless. They get remaindered, they get sold to discount places. Okay. And Um, what's the implication um, for the
0: externalities of IQ with the O-ring theory of production?
1: Well, what Creamer shows is that... that, if production is O-ring, then what will tend to happen is that all the smart workers will wind up in one firm. This is in a simple case. The smart workers will wind up in one firm and the less smart workers wind up in another firm. And that's actually economically optimal. That actually produces the biggest pie overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I use this point to – I build on his model and say this might explain – I have a way to explain how both that can be true and yet at the same time – lower IQ people within, say, the U.S. or Germany only earn a little bit less than the high IQ people. Because, oh, creamer's theory makes it sound like, wow, IQ is so important that, our, or worker skill, he's focusing on something generic called worker skill. Worker skill is so important that it seems like lower skilled workers would basically be useless. But in fact, modern economies find a ton of use for lower skilled workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, and the like I said before, the correlation between Um, either IQ or education, and your wages just isn't strong enough for Creamer's theory to be the whole theory. So I wanted to come up with a story that could explain how the commanding heights of the economy in a nation could be pinned down by these O-ring processes, you know, running a Facebook, running a Google, running a Microsoft, and yet there could still be a lot of tasks for other people to do in the economy that are super valuable, so highly valued that these folks are paid a lot, even though they have slightly less skill. Oh, could you I call that... Oh,
0: sorry, I was going to ask you if you could summarize your theory.
1: Yeah, so my theory is that um, a lot of the economy, maybe most of it, works the way that most economists assume most of the time. Most of the time, we use this fancy math called the Cobb-Douglas production function. But The big idea behind it is that for most of the economy, um, high-skilled workers and low-skilled workers are pretty good substitutes for each other. In fact, we sometimes assume they're Sort of perfect substitutes, sort of. So, one one high school educated worker is worth um, one high one high school educated worker might be worth um, half of a college educated worker, just to give a rough example, right? Mm-hmm. So, one college educated worker can do the work of two high skilled workers, and that's just a flat linear relationship, and it scales on all the way up. So, if a lot of the economy works like that then um, what I argue, and this is a little tough, this is probably the most abstract idea in the whole book, what I try to argue is that the high-skilled high skilled folks are definitely going to be working in this O-ring sector, making really cutting-edge stuff that you can export globally. Mm-hmm. The question is, are they also going to be working over in this foolproof sector, where they're a pretty good substitute for the local, less-skilled help? And... My answer is as long as there's only a few of the low-skilled folks around, you'll probably see people working in both sectors. Okay. You'll see a lot of people working in the in the um, O-ring sector making the globally exported stuff that's super awesome, um, but then eventually some of the additional – some um, of these high-skilled workers will start piling in to the foolproof sector and they'll produce stuff that people love that's local. Maybe it's running restaurants, maybe it's mowing lawns, maybe it's doing ele- you know electrical repair work. And they'll pile into that, but the more them pile into it, the lower and lower and lower the wage goes. Mm-hmm. And enough of them pile in so that you end up with workers in both sectors. That's what I a version of the economist's idea, the law of one price. Eventually The wages will adjust between the two sectors, so you have people working in both sectors. So
0: you're saying there's there's really not enough jobs for all the high IQ people in the O-ring sector. There's not enough jobs at Facebook and Google, so some of them get more traditional
1: jobs. And in in fact, it's actually the opposite. Let let me stop you there, because in fact, it's closer to the opposite. I actually I I follow Creamer, and I assume that the O-ring sector is perfectly scalable. So I actually don't put my rabbit in the hat there. Okay. Right. I actually say no, the O-ring sector could be scaled up infinitely. It's the other sector that's where the first worker is infinitely good, the second worker is a little bit less good, and diminishing returns actually only kick in in that second sector. And I treat that as a stand-in for sort of, um, there's these high-tech jobs that where you really could make a ton of a great living exporting stuff to the world. But then there's other sectors. You might think of it as, uh, you know, medicine, uh, you might think of it as local restaurants. You might think of it as home home health services. Things where everybody locally is going to want it, but um, the more people that are doing it, the less crucial it becomes. So there's diminishing returns in the foolproof sector. Again, you can think of it as sort of the local, the domestic services sector. Okay. Um, domestic consumer goods sector. And so that's where the diminishing returns kicks in. So actually, the marginal, the workers are shifting over into the into the foolproof sector because the first worker is so highly productive, he'll definitely open a fancy restaurant across the street from Facebook.
0: Okay, so in the foolproof sector, they're doing things of enormous value, and so they're they're gonna draw in- At least for the first worker. Yeah, initially there, and they're gonna draw in some of the um, high IQ workers because diminishing returns wanna push down the wage in the foolproof sector so much that the high IQ people won't go into the O-ring sector.
1: Yes, yes. Um, and so um, so actually they're pulling people away from the O-ring sector at first and eventually they enough of them pile into the foolproof sector that until the law of one price holds where the wage in the two sectors will be equal and nobody feels like moving between sectors anymore.
0: Okay. Well, is the O-ring sector getting larger though?
1: As well, sort of actually it reaches the world. Um that's that's an interesting question in real life whether whether um I tend to think that there are probably just a lot of O-ring sectors around in the cutting edge of the economy or O-ring-like sectors. Um, and if anything, as industries mature, there's a strong tendency I suspect, although it's I've not tested this, but I strongly suspect that as industries mature, they go from being O-ring to being foolproof mm-hmm. um, because there's a strong management incentive to basically de-skill whatever, whatever tasks the company is doing. You know, at first, you only have the very best engineers working on um, on the project, and then eventually, once it becomes more routine, you find a way to hire lower and lower and lower-skilled workers. You know, you know, you start doing first you start building it in the U.S. and then you start finding ways to de-skill the production and get it to a lower-wage country, for instance.
0: I want to imagine you come up with good error correction methods, so it's okay if a few people mess up occasionally.
1: Yes. So I tend to think that industry maturity tends to predict uh, foolproofness. Okay. That's another testable hypothesis. So Creamer's Creamer's essay, is his article, which was in the quarterly journal of economics, fantastic, very simple story. Um, Anybody could work through the basics of it because he's such a lucid writer. And I think it should should be setting off uh, research agendas across especially the fields of management and industrial organization. It really hasn't. People cite it a lot. It gets heavily cited um but not used as a tool for concrete research it's more like used as a parable
0: okay and because of the o-ring sector i mean how does that give a, a big advantage to countries that are that have higher iqs than other countries
1: well it's because um you know just think about the world of technology this is mm-hmm. there's a in the world, especially of say capital goods, capital goods tend to be made in just a few of the cutting edge economies and then exported everywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the laptops, even if they're nowadays manufactured in China or maybe a few other places, I mean they're generally designed uh, and initially engineered in the frontier economies, and nobody's willing. Uh, they, it seems to be a case where you just need a large body of workers of high with a high level of skill. To even get a laptop computer out the door. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what what kind of um, electronics? What will, will um, less skilled countries try to engineer? They'll try to, you know, engineer routine, you know, uh, wristwatches, say, you know, or routine old-fashioned smartphones, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, the ability to basically build the the equivalent of the economic space shuttle, the thing that's at the very frontier of the economy, mm-hmm. is something that's probably highly productive.
0: Okay. And so this isn't really a case of the mean IQ of a country. It's a case of having a certain number of people with an IQ above a certain threshold.
1: Yeah, I tend to think Never. that this is, um, in a sense, this is the case, this is the most optimistic case for uh, mass low-skilled immigration because it's a story just built around private production processes. Okay. So, so yeah. we, we
0: don't lose these industries if we get a lot of low IQ workers coming into our country.
1: No, 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 nothing in this nothing in this model, and it's even if you dressed it up quite a bit, nothing in that would um, be weakened by having a lot of uh, low-skilled workers coming in. So no, not at all.
0: It's just a question so. of having enough people with an IQ above, say, 130, and it's an absolute we're, number, we're, not a
1: percentage. Yeah. Something like that. Whatever you where, Wherever you look around the world today and think, here's the cutting edge of the economy, this is probably a place where you need a lot of people. I'd say, yeah, maybe 130, maybe 120, uh, comfortably a standard deviation north of the mean. You need that critical mass of folks, so you always got a job, a stack of job applications from sharp people um, that you can that you can hire.
0: Okay, and of course, even within the a country in the United States, you'll still go to certain cities, and these cities will collect those very high IQ people.
1: Yeah, there really is a strong, um, strong, an intense, an intense feature of the American economy today that there are a few places where the where high IQ people, not just mathy people, not just STEM types, they tend to cluster in a few places. And um, to some extent, they're playing the lottery. They're checking to see, am I going to get rich before I'm 35 or 40 um, uh, by trying to live in one of these uh, intellectual hotspots, human capital hotspots.
0: Okay. So a way to really help our economy w- would be to allow a lot more high IQ people to come in and, and live in these cities. I wonder if you're any- think so, Yeah. I wonder if we can experiment where we pick some city that's doing horrible like Detroit and we said, all right, we'll let in twenty thousand really high IQ but poor people to, you know, move into Detroit and see if that, you know, can become an O Ring um, city.
1: I I think that would be a fan, uh, a great experiment to run and it'd be I I have little doubt that it would be great for the people of Detroit. So it'd be hard you know, Adam Ozemek, to justify it though. Adam Ozimek has pushed for versions of this, right? He's pushed for he's a Forbes uh, economics columnist. Mm -hmm. And I think others have, too, but basically saying we should open up visas for uh, people to come in. But we tell them you must settle in this area for X number of years Uh um, in places that we're really worried about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, people can can quibble about that as social planning. But at least thinking through economically, what what would be the consequences of that? Um, As an economist, it's I, I see that as a win win story, not a win lose story.
0: Right, and they don't have to come here, so we're
1: not yeah, making yeah, them better yeah. off by making them the offer. Yeah.
0: Um, let's talk about certain countries. I mean, China has an average IQ that's higher than, than most Western countries do. And China still so, quite yeah, poor. Yeah. Does this yeah. show that we should be very optimistic about China's future economic growth? I mean, the normal econ story is, right, China was crazy under Mao. Then under Deng yeah. Xiaoping, they had a sane economic policy, but they had catch-up growth. They were able to yes. like, oh, look what the West doing. We'll just copy their designs for computers and cars, but eventually they're just going to catch up to us and they'll slow down. But if yes. it's IQ plays a big role, that's an argument saying, no, China might slow down, but they will they could easily surpass us before they do.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's that's entirely possible. Um, I mean, any one country has an enormous amount of anomaly. Like every country is an exception to the rule, right? Yeah. But um. China's China's fast economic growth, um, on some level, can be just predicted by the path of Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan, you know, had its, uh, you know, once Taiwan uh, started growing in the 50s and 60s, it basically blazed a path that China could have started following if they hadn't been foolish enough to try out communism for a couple of decades. Right. So, if if the other side had won in the civil war, who knows how history would have turned out? I mean um Chiang Kai-shek was was you know trained in a, in a socialist more broadly communist worldview. Yeah. But um, you know, one can imagine a world where if the if the Chinese, if the mainland Chinese had just um, switched away from capitalism, switched away to capitalism a couple decades earlier, they'd be as rich as Taiwan right now and Taiwan's an entirely uh, pr- a prosperous pleasant place. And
0: China, I mean, just unless there's a lower standard deviation of IQ among the Chinese, they must have more very high IQ people than the United States does. So if there's another like O-ring level of their tasks that are too hard for Silicon Valley to do because they don't have enough really high IQ people, you could imagine in, in Beijing might be the only place in the world where you could do this.
1: Yes, it's, um, I mean, basically any of these giga countries, right, you've got two giga countries, and currently one of them seems to have uh, quite high average IQ. Um, there are just enough anomalies of uh, reporting um, test score data from China that one one wants to have at least the amount of caution about Chinese test score data as we do about Chinese GDP data. Uh-huh. So I should put some you know, brackets around any claims you make, any claims I make about China. But I tend to think that um, we've got enough data to be sure that their their average is well north of ninety, which means that they've got to have. A lot of very smart people there whose skills are currently being deeply deeply misused they're stuck in the countryside they're stuck in villages they're stuck having to spend years of their education learning like communist doctrine yeah. just wasted effort yeah
0: um what do you do you have a good estimate for the average
1: iq of people in china i mean you know you know lin and meisenberg they've looked at a lot of data now and um, they've improved their results from the early stuff with van and you know they say it's about 105. Um, that said, the strange thing is, a few months ago, I went looking for um, Chinese IQ data, and I tended to see these bimodal distributions from different different categories of studies. And in one case, I saw I remember looking at a study um, that was co-authored by someone from an elite Western university, and with some, but also had some uh, uh, domestic Chinese co-authors. And the, the the authors of the paper just said, we're seeing this really low average IQ score. That was somewhere in the 80s, I think. Mm-hmm. And they said – the authors say, like, we don't really know what to make of this. This just doesn't seem right. Um, but it's what we found in this sample, and it was – look, we tried to pick a representative sample, and I saw just enough of these low scores. and I'm still – I have not seen a definitive um, survey of Chinese IQ the way that, say, uh, Weikertz and his co-authors – did a uh, comprehensive survey of sub-Saharan African IQ estimates recently. Mm-hmm. I would love for someone serious to go in and do an average China um, IQ estimate, just looking at all of the data and trying to tease out all these studies. I think that would get a lot of citations because a lot of people have asked me this question, the very question you just asked me. Yeah, so I'm that's sure. a great issue. for. And Weikertz has done you know, uh, fantastic work looking um in a very difficult area looking at sub-Saharan African IQ averages mm-hmm.
0: and let, let's uh, turn to Africa now probably in part for environmental reasons or largely for environmental reasons the average IQ of sub-Saharan African people it, it's extremely low yeah that yes. might we might be able to increase it or they might be able to increase it in the future but if they don't increase it do you see much hope for sort of ra- rapid economic growth or you know have decent have that them having decent economies
1: I think you're on the right path there, which is that like if they can't find ways to raise uh, average IQ scores up into the 90s or something, uh, you, know, you know, a little less than a standard deviation below the U.S. mean, mm-hmm. um, they're going to have a tough time. As long as the economy, the global economy, stays anything the way it is now, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Weikerts, um and his co-authors um, basically did an, an entire series of papers trying to knock down the IQ data set that I drew on in my book, right? So Lynn and Ben Hanen, Lynn and his co-authors created this, these IQ estimates for sub-Saharan Africa. And they said, we think that on average, sub-Saharan African IQ is about 70, maybe 67. So that's more than two standard deviations below the mean. Mm-hmm. Weikertz and his folks just looked at that and said, that's way too low. That's gotta be wrong. It does seem so they,
0: crazy low. I mean, I I haven't never been to Africa, but it just doesn't it, seem right.
1: It seems too low. It yeah. is too low. Okay. It, it is, that's the, the short version is that it is too low. So that's, so that's why Weikert's uh, uh, analysis is so useful because he basically digs through all of Lynn's data, finds his own data. Um, this is a big team effort, but I'll just talk about Weikert's. Mm-hmm. And they, they look at all the data they can find. They try to be very judicious, as far as I could tell, judicious in what um, samples they look at. Um, but depending on the method they use, as I summarize in the book, they find that the, the average IQ in sub Saharan Africa is either about 76 or about 82. That's a big difference. Those are a big difference, but they're both well below 90. Yeah. They're, both far, they're both below anyone's estimate of, say, um, African American average IQ. Yes. Um, they're, they show up on multiple kinds of tests, uh, both the Ravens, which seems more abstract and maybe less culture laden, and on these more visual, uh, more verbal tests. Um, It's a fairly broad result, which is a, and again, of course, variance is wide, there are smart people in literally every country in the world, Um, but uh, the mean in Sub-Saharan Africa, even by the careful Weikers estimate, is um, comfortably below, it seems to be well below an average of 90.
0: Okay, I should clarify just so we don't get in trouble that we're certainly not excluding environmental causes of that, that could be malaria, disease burden, there's a lot of things that could be causing that that number to be rel-
1: relatively low. I completely agree. Actually, there's a nice, um, actually one of the better published papers that came out citing um, Lynn and Van Haneen, uh took their data and just used it to analyze to see if disease burden could predict the IQ scores in different countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And they did indeed find that as a predictor. Of course, correlation isn't causation, but sometimes right. it is. Um, that you could do a pretty good job explaining um, Africa's tragically low. Uh, test scores by looking at the disease burden in Africa. So um, that was published in, um, oh, it's a a British uh, high-level British journal with the. It's a B journal. It's actually something B. So it's okay. in my book. So.
0: Okay, so eliminating the disease burden in Africa could be the best way of you know increasing African economic development.
1: Yeah, that genuinely seems to be important to me. I think partly. Partly it may be something that just anything that affects the ability of the government to run decent schools. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to so I'm happy to talk about the Flint effect, the long term environmental increase in IQ to a great degree. Oh yeah, but let's I, talk about that. So
0: the Flint effect is just av- the average IQ has been going up since like World War One, since anyone started seriously measuring it. It's everywhere yes. and we don't really at least there's not a consensus as to why it's occurring.
1: No, no. So, um, well, do you think Flynn, first, was a, do you think the Flynn effect right. is
0: real? Is it real? Is it just a just the way we're tasked or do you think it really we are really are
1: getting smarter? I think I think Flynn is right that to some extent modern life has become more like the IQ test where more of our life um asks us. It's a demand side story. More of modern life asks us to analyze, to sort, to put into different boxes, to think abstractly it um i think our childhood training pushes us in that direction more that said um, we're also people in the west and in east a- in the rich countries of east asia and well as well are just taller and bigger and healthier than we used to be mm-hmm. and i believe the brain is a part of the body right so uh, things that make the body healthier are making the brain healthier as well um so Flynn himself thinks that most of the, what, of the Flynn effect is basically how we choose to use our brains, how our cultures encourage us to use our brains. Mm-hmm. Um, he sees the Flynn effect as a cultural phenomenon heavily. Um, Lin, um, ha- tends to see it as heavily a, a biological phenomenon of greater health. Um, it's hard to sort this out. The research on it is basically a few steps beyond anecdotal. I mean, there's a lot of systematic data collection. But it's been very hard to actually comprehensively test it. I really think this is something where – I've been saying this for a decade. I think economists can make a huge contribution to this. This does uh,
0: seem to be one of the like most important unsolved mysteries in social science. I mean given how important is. IQ is to everything and the fact that our IQ yes. has been going up, we'd like to go up even faster. So it would be really nice if we knew why.
1: Yes, and the, the differences have been big enough and the data is now long-lived enough that I suspect that modern – Time series panel type techniques could be useful for even teasing out these um, these sort of low grade differences in trend these low grade trend effects two points per decade maybe um, that's I think that's enough that uh, with some good data and some good theory and some good econometric methods um, uh, some uh, some good grad students can make some real progress on this so it's it's it's, it's there's some low hanging fruit there there are good psychologists doing work on it. I do think it's something that's going to be solved with some form of panel or time series data. At least that'll be a big contribution. Is it still operating
0: on Americans? Are we still getting a bit smarter every decade?
1: It's not clear. Um, Flynn Flynn actually um, put the question mark in one of his recent books on this. He says, you know, have have the gains ended? I think something like that was the chapter title. Um, There's data, I believe, for the U.K. and one of the Nordic countries. I can't recall if there's data for the U.S. that that the Flynn effect has – tapped out or even declined okay so um it looks like we may be coming to an end um for the for the real skeptic it doesn't seem to be explained by simple demographic effects um simple composition effects from say caused by migration Mm -hmm. um there seems to be something something at work where maybe you know i mean we're not getting that much taller either so yeah
0: have we really been getting much healthier in the united states over the last 30 years or so is it
1: well, this is a point that, that Tyler makes in the Great Stagnation, and my colleague Tyler Cowan, mm-hmm. which is that um, the big longevity gains occurred before 1971, and I think or before the early 70s. And since 70, since the early 70s, it's been about I think a month per year. Mm-hmm. Is that about a month per year, something like that? Yeah,
0: it sounds about. So, right.
1: Yeah. So the 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 longevity gains have declined. They've not stopped, but they have declined. They have de- declined dramatically. Yeah. So.
0: It's weird with the Flynn fact because we really haven't had much success with social engineering to raise people's IQ through different schooling systems but we're sort of it's happening no. organically and
1: it makes yeah, it that's the amazing thing. thing we failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what um, Flynn, F- Flynn has pointed this out for a long time that when you look at the gains they don't seem to be the kind of things that are practiced in school like the vocabulary test type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem to be these it's a lot of the highly abstract parts and this is This has been something that sticks in the craw of the sort of anti-Flynn types, the people who think it's all biological, that IQ is 100% biological or nearly 100% biological, Mm -hmm. is that uh, by many metrics, the biggest Flynn gains are on the Ravens, which used to be considered the sine qua non, the perfect measure of abstract human intelligence. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the places where the Flynn effect, surely an environmental effect if there ever was one, is the Flynn effect is showing up massively on the on the Ravens.
0: I mean, if we could go back in time to like 1900 and, you know, pull some of the average people here and talk to them, I mean, would they seem, you know, mentally retarded? Because that's kind of what the Flynn effect would predict of the average people back then.
1: Not at all. And I think part of the reason is because the Flynn gains really do differ across subtests. So people often point out, oh, look, the Flynn gains are – are you know they're they are equivalent to a, a standard deviation every you know seven decades or something. Mm-hmm. Yes, but they're showing up on certain certain subtests and not on others. Okay. Um. So I this is part of it, to to me it's an interesting puzzle. Why is it that the gains if the, if I if I thought the gains were just simple biology I would expect to sort we'd sort of be better in all the ways just as we as we've as we've gotten taller. And stronger and bigger, we've gotten better at sort of all Olympic events right. broadly speaking. Right, There's, that's been a G factor, a general factor of progress. Um, whereas intelligence seems to be the sort of more hit and miss. It's hitting some areas of the human mind, but not others. And to me, this is a great, a, a really an econometric puzzle. Yeah, especially um, that's why I don't think. Sorry. But I do think that there would be certain topics, and Flynn says this too. There are certain topics you would talk with someone about. 70 or 80 years ago, just sort of certain forms of abstract thinking about news thinking about current events, there'd just be a lot less interest in that high level of abstraction um, compared to to a lot of folks today.
0: I wonder if the elite back then, I mean, if we go back a few centuries, you know, we, we do historical studies, should we take into account that maybe the elite were really bad at certain mental tasks and that, thats part of why they made these decisions. I mean, we tend to model I, people in the past as being like us, but should we abandon that?
1: I—I um, I have one. I wonder about this genuinely, not just in terms of—not in terms of intelligence, really, but in terms of psychology. To what extent has human—has human psychology, have human norms changed? In the West, this is common to think about when you think about how Christianity changed uh, the sense of the self. Mm-hmm. I mean it does I often read you know I, I read a fair amount of the classics and I sometimes think I Caesar and Socrates and Plato they're people that I recognize yeah I feel like there's some some areas where they're very different from me and I don't think that it's just sample selection like they just didn't happen to write about these things um. Again, this is something where I think that a, a, an econometric approach to to writing, for instance, you know, you, a, a big data approach to analyzing um, ancient writings and comparing it to modern writings in terms of topics, mm-hmm. uh, references to the self, um, uh, things like that, think, references to emotions. Mm-hmm. I think, at the you know, I think there's great work to be done there. That said, we could even just do it looking over a century if the Flynn effect is as big a deal as it is. We mm-hmm. have data on where the flint effect has been large or where it's been small and we could check and see mm-hmm. looking at say high school essays written by people in 1930 versus high school essays written by people uh today
0: yeah and see
1: so a large sample
0: see how good they are uh, speaking of yeah, people in the distant past i i think you've written that how a group did like two three thousand years ago that mm-hmm. is strongly correlated with the group's economic performance today is that am i remembering correctly
1: yeah, this is something that's quite outside my book and it's um, something I've gotten more interested in since the book has come out. Um, it's all building on what uh, is referred to as the deep roots theory of economic development. Um, Spolari and Waxiarg have a very nice article in the Journal of Economic Literature that looks over this. And so it turns out that there are these three big metrics of uh, that are basically metrics of how things were a long time ago. Um, and they're measures of how long ago An organized state existed on your territory, how long ago settled agriculture started in your territory, and how much of the world's technology your people were using in the year 1500. Uh, Those are the state's agriculture technology, what I call your nation's SAT score. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that these, these deep historical predictors, these deep historical facts are okay predictors, sometimes pretty strong predictors of how rich your nation is today. But that's only really true if you adjust for migration. Right. So um, uh, this is um, something that's been widely published and widely well, dis, fairly well discussed among economists. These are you know, papers that have been cited a thousand times. Um, but it's done very little to inform modern policy debates. So that's something that I think that people should start thinking about more in the future. Yeah. I mean in some ways it's a
0: depressing result because if your destiny is determined by what your ancestors were doing several thousand years ago and you're not doing that well – you might if, expl- if It
1: explains half of it. Now, here's you know, I, here's the politically correct and somewhat intellectually useful tool to think about. This okay. is a point that Spilware and Waxiag make themselves in their JEL piece. They say, you know, hey, remember, this correlation is only say 0. 0.5 or 0. 0.6. That's not 100%. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, what you should do with good research is start figuring out what what lessons you can learn to make things better. So you may find, you know you start trying to find out what is it about what happened 500, 600, 1,000 years ago that uh, makes people today in your country so productive. Um, We're not gonna start figuring out the puzzle of human poverty and prosperity until we start um, asking the serious theoretical questions of where does prosperity genuinely come from? So um, good inquiry, good free inquiry is the only way that um, Jim Flynn learned about the Flynn Effect um, and I think good free inquiry into the deep roots of human prosperity is how we can find new ways to spread prosperity to more countries.
0: Yeah. I mean, you talk about free inquiry. Certainly in academia, there is a lot of resistance to looking into IQ and to taking it seriously. It would be, you know, it would be a horrible shame if we sort of learn why some people have low IQs and we figure out how to correct it. And we say to ourselves, you know, we could have done this 20 years ago, but for all the taboos surrounding IQ.
1: You're right. That's it's absolutely horrible. The taboos that surround this important question. That was kind of my goal with writing this book, which was to encourage people to, you know, I, I thought I thought a lot of people were thinking, hey, IQ isn't that important. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that my own research showed that IQ was vastly more important than people had expected, than even IQ optimists had expected, I thought I need to get this story out there. To incur, so that some people will feel like, hey, there really is a payoff to violating the taboo. Hey, there really mm-hmm. is a payoff to finding ways to raise IQ by two, three, four points in low-scoring countries. Mm-hmm. Um, because maybe the effect is, as I, as I suggest in the book, maybe six times bigger for nations than for individuals. Mm-hmm. So if you, when you show people that the benefit to violating a taboo is pretty high, maybe you'll get a few more people to do work in the area.
0: Have you encountered a lot of resistance to your ideas? Not a lot.
1: I, yeah. I I could be dramatic and tell you a few stories, um, but um, I will tell you anonymous peer review within academia has just been incredibly good to me. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm, I I know. You know, again, I could tell stories. I'll save it for the memoirs. <laughs> but you know, if I've I've, I've probably submitted my papers, you know, dozens of times on these on these topics, mm-hmm. and I can suspect maybe twice I had something political happen. Um, that's not that bad by the standards of the real world. I can't complain too much. No, no, not at all. Uh, people evaluated it on the merits because you're saying, I mean, economists know that test scores differ across countries. Yeah, this isn't a secret, and right. that's all I'm saying. Right, that's the core of what I'm saying, which is that we all know test scores differ across countries. Um, here's my story for why it matters more than you think. Okay. So um, economists are seem to be willing – the economist's interest in being interesting and seeing mm-hmm. something new and maybe true seems to overwhelm whatever um, political correctness norms they have. And in particular, I think, like I said, editors seem to protect anonymity So um, mm-hmm. of the referees. So they've uh, been able to – I think people – I'm guessing. I can only assume that some of the people – um who who refereed who who agreed to, who said that my article should be published themselves would not have done that kind of work that just wasn't the thing but right. they looked at it and said hey this is pretty good science i'm i'm going to take it so yeah
0: okay. we should take this that's good usually you hear the problems of peer review but i guess this is yeah if you're if you're willing to fight against political correctness but you're not brave enough to do it in your own name then it's good if we have anonymous refereeing
1: yeah i think this is something that's um i mean you know i I was new in a lot of these areas, and some of my referees were actually quite good in pointing out, "Hey, you know, here's, you know, here's one or two tweaks you should make." So you basically, so you sound like an insider, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, so I, I, along the way, I did research that was experimental economics, game theory, um, economic growth, cross-country regressions, a lot of different kinds of evidence, and so I was new to a lot of these areas, and um, people treated me pretty well, so I have to say. So. Again, that's a reminder that um, what I often tell people is that if um, if you're the first person to write in a topic on a topic, mm-hmm. people will be a little forg- more forgiving of your errors because you're trying. You know, mm-hmm. you're clearly making a good faith effort. So um, that's one reason to try to be the first person to work in a new area. Huh. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, let me uh, finally ask you. I mean, do you are you hoping? that we can use sort of genetic engineering to increase human intelligence. I've had other guests on this show that think we might be able to, in, you know, five to 15 years, be able to engineer smarter humans. Do you think, I mean, that would, am I right? Do you think that that would just be an enormously good thing for most economies?
1: I can only imagine so. I mean, of course, one worries about side effects, right? But um, if you're really, if, you know, once it's been tested on a couple of generations of other primates... And we've seen that it works. Um, It seems like uh, this is an unalloyed, uh, a nearly unalloyed good. Higher, more intelligent people seem to be better off in a wide variety of ways, Um, and they're better. They seem to be better for their neighbors. So, is is there anything um,
0: bad that's that's correlated with IQ?
1: um, The one that's clearest is um, that smarter people are more likely to uh, be nearsighted. Okay. Well. So we really do wear, I mean, I wear I wear glasses. So that stereotype or, is right. That stereotype is exactly right.
0: Okay. Well, um, I'm grateful for you taking the time to come on my podcast, and I hope you continue your research into IQ and economics. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks very much, James. Appreciate uh, being here.
0: Sure, sure. Okay. Well, that was my interview with Garrett Jones, author of Hive Mind, How Your Nation's IQ Matters So Much More Than Your Own. If you like this podcast, please consider writing me a favorable review on either iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And also please consider joining my Facebook group, which is just called Future Strategist. Goodbye.